Good morning, everyone. Thank you for joining us for our medical grand rounds. I think we're going to go ahead and get started. Can you all hear me okay? Great. Um, I'm going to welcome uh, Dr. James Stahl, the Section Chief of General Internal Medicine and an Associate Professor at the Geisel School of Medicine, um, to introduce today's speaker. So thank you all for being here. And I, I'm actually very, very pleased to introduce my friend, uh, Dr. Ahmed Bayoumi. Um, and just to give you a little bit of a background on him, um, so Dr. Bayoumi began his career in Toronto, is getting his MD and uh, master's in, in clinical epidemiology, and then went on to what I would like to embarrass him to say, a very prestigious career in, in health services research. Um, he is, among his many titles, a scientist at the uh, Center for Research on Intercity Health at the uh, Keenan Research Center at the Li Kaixing Knowledge uh, Institute at St. Michael's Hospital. He's a general internist and HIV, uh, HIV physician there. He old, holds the uh, Baxter and Rickard Chair for, in Intercity Health at St. Michael's and the University of Toronto. Um, he's also a professor of medicine and in the Institute uh, for Health Policy Management and Evaluation at the University of Toronto. And his research uh, interests are pretty diverse, uh, which include uh, economic evaluation, decision analysis, quality of life uh, assessment, HIV-related health interventions, and looking at access to services, particularly uh, for patients with uh, HIV. Um, I would have to say, you know, he, oh, excuse me, my notes here have disappeared. Um, you know, he, Ahmed has had a strong interest in, in health technology assessment, health economics, uh, equity, and the work of delivering care to marginalized populations. And I cannot say enough how important those interests are to us now. Uh, we all realize that we are in a crisis uh, both in healthcare delivery, but in particular with substance misuse in New England and in particular uh, New Hampshire. And uh, all those skills are critically important. We have to um, we have to think about um, the all our very vulnerable populations because these problems are going to affect them most and most acutely and fastest. And we have to be think about these things in compassionate, ethical in equitable ways, um, but also at the same time, we also have to judge our potential solutions with clear, honest, and analytic eyes to be sure that what we are doing is the right thing to do. So I have known Ahmed for many, many years. I respect him very, very much, and I look forward to learning from my friend. So thanks, Ahmed. Thank you very much, James, and thank you uh, particularly for the invitation. It's a delight to be here, uh, my first time in New Hampshire. So I'm going to talk to you, to you today about supervised injection sites uh, as a health intervention, evidence and application. I have uh, no financial or commercial disclosures. Uh, this research was funded by the Ontario HIV Treatment Network and the Canadian Institutes for Health Research. 
So here's what I hope to do today. I want to discuss how the concept of harm reduction can inform clinical and public health responses to drug use. I want to evaluate the role of supervised injection sites in decreasing harms associated with injection drug use. And I hope to reflect on how the controversial, on how controversial policy decisions are made and how physicians and researchers can influence that process. So this is a picture of a facility called Insight in Vancouver. Insight is a supervised injection facility. It was the first uh, legally sanctioned facility in North America. Uh, so these are little stalls. You can see that there's a mirror. On the left here, you see that there's a nursing station. Uh, the, there is uh, usually a nurse uh, who sits there at the station. People come into this facility. They sit at one of these stalls. There's a mirror there. The mirror is there both for people to uh, help people to find a vein uh, in which to inject. But the mirror is also there so that the nurse who's sitting at the nursing station has a better view of the person who is injecting. So people come into this facility, they bring their own drugs into the facility, but while they are in InSight, they are protected from being arrested, so they cannot be uh, arrested under federal drug laws uh, while they're in uh, the facility. They inject here. There's a room uh, off to the side uh, where they then go, or are allowed to go uh, and um, relax after they inject. Insight's been in operation now for about 13 years. Uh, and recently, there's been a lot of discussion about uh, whether other cities should have similar facilities. And just uh, not too far from here, in Ithaca, uh, you may have seen that the mayor has been uh, very vocal in calling for a similar facility to be established uh, in Ithaca. Uh, so this has made uh, attracted a fair bit of media attention. Uh, and um, uh, a lot of questions. And in fact, there have been similar sort of initiatives, sometimes by public health uh, officials, sometimes by uh, community activists calling for facilities in uh, San Francisco, in Baltimore, in Seattle. Uh, and Seattle actually thinks that it uh, will be the first place in the United States to establish a facility, uh, in New York City. And uh, just last week, uh, USA Today issued an editorial uh, where their editorial board advocated for establishing supervised injection facilities in the United States as a harm reduction intervention. But to be fair, there was an opposing editorial as well uh, from somebody who used to be uh, in the Bush administration uh, uh, arguing against supervised injection facilities. Well, I'm going to tell you a story about Toronto. And in Toronto, really, uh, supervised injection facilities have, I put here from idea to policy, uh, we're almost at policy, we're not quite there yet. I'm going to uh, try and tell you a story about how over the course of about a decade in Toronto, uh, we've come to a place where municipal public health leaders, uh, editorialists of all the major newspapers, uh, uh, except maybe one, uh, and other prominent public officials have all endorsed supervised injection how the police, who initially were strongly opposed to supervised injection, are now mostly silent and have taken a sort of wait-and-see attitude, uh, and how we've gotten now to the point where we are uh, currently conducting community consultations about establishing facilities, uh, and we are likely going to start the process officially to establish those facilities in the fall. And really, I want to focus today on the question of how did we get here. So I'm going to take a step back. 
I want to talk a little bit about harm reduction because I think it's important to recognize that uh, almost all of the research in this area and uh, indeed all of the advocacy in this area starts from a harm reduction perspective. And uh, what does that mean? So harm reduction really are policies, programs, and practices that aim to reduce the negative health, social, and economic consequences that may ensue from the use of uh, legal and illegal psychoactive drugs. And the key is that reducing the adverse consequences associated with psychoactive drug use is considered even more important than reducing illicit drug consumption. So uh, it's, been, it's been discussed a fair bit whether harm reduction and abstinence are opposing or um, reconcilable perspectives, but uh, harm reduction doesn't mandate abstinence. And uh, people who uh, view abstinence as the only goal for drug policy will have a problem with harm reduction. Early writings on harm reduction were very value neutral and pragmatic, focused on really uh, looking at the harms. More recent writings have actually focused on the rights of people who inject drugs and uh, put harm reduction in a social justice perspective. So here are some principles that I've adapted from an earlier article. Uh, Non-medicinal use of psychoactive drugs has been observed in every society and is inevitable. We should recognize that people are going to use drugs. Non-medicinal drug use will have important social and individual harms. And a pragmatic approach that focuses on reducing the consequences of drug use can decrease such harms. Indeed, uh, saying this further, we have a limited ability to actually treat drug use. Some people can stop drug use, but many people who stop will go back to using drugs again. Drug use is a chronic, uh, long-term uh, uh, behavior, uh, and we need to uh, treat people both at the times that they are uh, using drugs uh, to help them to stop using drugs, but also to help minimize the harms associated with that drug use. Fourth, protecting the health of people who use drugs is essential for protecting the health of the community as a whole. So putting the, the person who uses drugs at the center uh, of the harm reduction approach is key, rather than focusing on uh, 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 other community uh, initiatives necessarily. And then lastly, a wide range of interventions is needed to address these harms. It's not always necessary to reduce non-medicinal drug use in order to reduce harms. But really, uh, we need uh, many different uh, approaches because each one will have uh, only a partial effect. So there are many uh, harm reduction interventions that have already become widely adopted. Needle and syringe exchange programs, uh, I recognize the United States are still variably, there's still variable coverage in terms of needle and syringe uh, programs across the country. Uh, but in Canada, for example, uh, needle and syringe exchange programs have been widely adopted throughout the country. Opioid agonist therapy, such as methadone and buprenorphine, are now widely used, but these are also harm reduction interventions. And naloxone uh, for treating overdose is also now widely adopted. There are other more controversial uh, harm reduction interventions. Prescribed heroin uh, is uh, uh, certainly controversial. Uh, in Canada, we've now just entered a public consultation phase, uh, Health Canada, uh, the, the, which is the uh, equivalent of the Department of Health and Social Services, uh, has just asked for public consultations about whether uh, heroin should be uh, allowed to be prescribed uh, to people who use drugs who uh, have had uh, no success on repeated uh, attempts to, uh, with opioid agonist therapy. 
Now, prescribed hydromorphone, again, we can talk about that later. Uh, supervised injection sites, which I'm going to talk about today. Uh, and supervised smoking sites, because many people smoke drugs rather than inject drugs. Uh, I'm not going to talk uh, about that today, but I'm happy to talk uh, to people about that later. Uh, there are no supervised smoking sites in uh, North America, uh, although there are a few in Europe. What are the harms of harm reduction? So there was a nice review uh, published a few years ago now, uh, which suggested that there is no rigorous evidence that has yet emerged that harm reduction uh, encourages the earlier initiation of drug use, that encourages more frequent injection of drugs, or that it uh, uh, leads to a more prolonged injecting career. So that's to, put the to uh, provide a framework for our discussion today. I'm going to uh, really use a harm reduction perspective to approach uh, in the discussion of supervised consumption facilities. So uh, we talked about this a little bit already, but to formalize the definition, a supervised consumption facility is a legally sanctioned health facility that offers a hygienic environment where people can use illicit drugs under the supervision of trained staff. So the drugs are still illegal. Uh, but people can't be prosecuted for possessing or using the drugs while they're within the facility. Uh, usually supervised injection, typically heroin or co cocaine. There are currently about uh, over 90 facilities that are operating internationally. There are about a dozen that have uh, closed, so there have been over 100 facilities historically. Uh, some incorporate smoking, as I said. Uh, they're predominantly in eight uh, European countries. There's a facility in Sydney in Australia. Uh, and there are now two facilities in Vancouver, and those currently are the only North American uh, facilities in existence. Uh, so the history of supervised injection in Canada really goes back to the late 1990s, when there was an alarming increase in HIV rates in Vancouver's uh, one neighborhood in Vancouver known as the downtown east side. The downtown east side is sometimes called the poorest postal code in Canada. So it's an area that has a tremendous amount of poverty, where there are very many people who are homeless and very many people who use drugs. The um, HIV rates uh, amongst people who use drugs in that neighborhood were in the order of 15 to 20 percent, which are very high uh, on the orders of uh, uh, prevalence rates where, uh, uh, in areas where HIV is a serious public health uh, issue. Uh, that led the Medical Officer of Health to declare a public health emergency in 1997. And uh, following that, from that declaration, uh, Insight, that facility that I was talking about, was opened in Vancouver as the first legally sanctioned supervised injection site in Canada and indeed in North America. And importantly, it had the support of the local police. Uh, I think the Vancouver police were the only police force in North America that did support it, but they did. Uh, but it did not have the support of the federal police, uh, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, or the Mounties, the RCMP are still our federal police force, but the RCMP was, was uh, definitely opposed, and this was a very contentious uh, issue. As I said, the facilities require exemptions from federal drug laws to operate. Uh, at the time that Insight was opened, the government in power was a liberal government. Our major parties are called liberal and conservative, and they um, pretty much reflect uh, those political views as well. So Insight was granted an exemption uh, from the um, uh, federal government in order to operate. 
But uh, subsequently, the conservatives uh, came to power at the federal level. Uh, although they initially extended the exemption, they were not very happy. Indeed, the uh, federal minister of health at the time declared that the supervised injection site undercuts the ethics of medical practice. He said this to the annual meeting of the Canadian Medical Association, uh, which got him a fair bit of criticism uh, as well. Uh, but eventually, the uh, Conservative government indicated that they would not renew the exemption. That led to a challenge in court uh, as to whether the minister could uh, refuse to uh, grant uh, further exemptions. And I'll come back to the court challenge in, in a minute. But first, I want to talk about what the actual evidence was that insight was beneficial. Uh, so there was a... Um, a group of researchers uh, who uh, got funding to do an evaluation of Insight, and they have actually done an extremely comprehensive evaluation. Uh, and they've shown that uh, amongst people who use Insight, there is a decrease in needle sharing. Uh, there is a decreased overdose rate, and I'll show you uh, some of that in a minute. There is, importantly, increased referral for drug treatment. Uh, so people get uh, referred more quickly uh, and more frequently uh, for drug treatment. There is now a drug treatment center on the second floor of the same building where Insight is operating so that people can be easily referred uh, for treatment. Um, so there, was, uh, there were considerable misgivings amongst business owners and particularly in the neighborhood around Insight when it was first established. In fact, there is now uh, increased and uh, I would even say strong community support for Insight because really, uh, and I'll show you some of this data in a minute, uh, it has had considerable benefits in terms of public litter uh, and public order. Uh, and then co it's cost effective and like cost saving, which is some of the work that we did, and I'll show you that very briefly as well. So first, it's important to recognize who uses uh, Insight, uh, and it's particularly uh, likely to be used by people who are going to use drugs in public, uh, people who are homeless, uh, people who use drugs daily, uh, and people who have overdosed in the past. So this is important because it indicates, and we have some of the same data in Toronto asking uh, people if they were likely to use uh, a supervised injection facility. The people who are likely to use are the people who are currently injecting in public and currently injecting frequently. So remember, we talked about the need for harm reduction interventions, for a variety of harm reduction interventions to target different uh, populations. Uh, here's a population that perhaps is not well served by uh, all of the currently existing interventions. And here are some uh, graphs showing the effects on various public order. The dotted line here uh, is the establishment uh, insight. And you can see the weeks before, uh, the six weeks before, and the 12 weeks after. Uh, but there was a, a considerable decrease in public injecting, in publicly discarded syringes, and injection-related litter. Uh, so, uh, uh, and this really was uh, a major uh, factor in winning over the support of local businesses and residents. Um, and here's some data that uh, the Vancouver Group published looking at overdoses. Uh, so the x-axis here is the distance for uh, uh, neighborhoods uh, to the supervised injection facility. Uh, so uh, smaller numbers here mean they're closer to the facility. Larger numbers mean they're further away from the facility. And the y-axis here is the rate difference in terms of overdoses per 100,000 person years. So a larger number means more overdoses prevented. 
it. So this is a difference looking at before and after Insight was established. And what you can see here is that for neighborhoods uh, close to the facility, uh, there was a considerable, uh, a fairly large effect in terms of decreasing overdose rates uh, near Insight. And here's a paper that we published looking at the cost effectiveness of the facility. And our conclusion was that if we focus just on decreased needle sharing as the effect, we found that it was associated with incremental nest savings of almost $14 million and 920 life years gained over 10 years. In fact, we actually projected that it was cost savings, which is rare for many uh, health interventions uh, and even public health interventions. So you'll recall that I said the, the case went to the, uh, went to the courts. It actually went all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada. Um, it made it through the provincial system. In September 2011, the court issued its ruling, and it ruled in favor of keeping Insight open. Uh, and it potentially opened the door for additional facilities if the court said there was an appropriate balance between public health and public order. Uh, but they said, uh, and these are verbatim quotes, the minister's failure to grant uh, an exemption contravened the principles of fundamental justice, and the Ministry of Health's decision would have prevented injection drug users from accessing the health services offered by Insight, threatening their health and indeed their lives. So uh, in the Canadian Constitution actually uh, does uh, protect or does recognize their right to health, uh, and that was uh, the basis of the Supreme Court's decision. And this was our report. So uh, we had been working with Toronto Public Health. Toronto Public Health uh, had been uh, tasked with uh, doing a feasibility assessment and a, uh, a, a needs assessment and a feasibility study uh, for Toronto to say whether Toronto would benefit from having a supervised injection facility. Uh, they approached us as academics to partner with them, and we were able to obtain funding. And we said we didn't want to just look at Toronto, we also wanted to look at Ottawa, in part because Ottawa Ottawa uh, at that time uh, had the highest HIV prevalence amongst people who inject uh, drugs in uh, the province of Ontario. So my uh, co-principal investigator in this study was Carol Strike. Uh, Carol is primarily a qualitative researcher. I'm primarily a quantitative researcher. And we really tried to design the study to be as comprehensive as possible. So we used both qualitative methods of focus groups and interviews. We interviewed people who use drugs. We interviewed people who work in the healthcare system. We interviewed residents and business owners. We interviewed uh, police uh, officers, uh, both uh, people who work in the community as well as the chiefs of police in both cities. Uh, we uh, undertook some geographic analysis. We used administrative health data to try and quantify uh, some of the issues related to drug use. We did some mathematical modeling and some cost-effectiveness analysis. And we perhaps somewhat audaciously claimed that our report was the most comprehensive assessment of potential supervised consumption sites ever undertaken. Uh, not, not the most comprehensive assessment of actual sites, but of potential sites. <laughs> So I'm going to uh, just take a few minutes to actually talk about some of our research. Uh, so here's what we did when we were trying to project what the health and economic effects of the facilities would be. We first tried to estimate the number and distribution of people who inject drugs in each city. We projected how many people who inject would uh, do so in a supervised injection facility. 
We presumed uh, what would happen to needle sharing if a supervised injection facility existed. We then extrapolated to predict how many HIV and hepatitis C cases would be befriended, how many lives would be saved, and how quality of life would be improved. We approximated the cost of running a facility, and then we calculated the cost effectiveness. So these are maps of Toronto. Uh, a darker uh, spot on this map indicates a higher prevalence of drug use. Uh, and you can see uh, there are six maps here. There actually were more than six in our report. The reason there are six maps is because there isn't a single administrative health code that clearly identifies drug use. So we uh, use uh, administrative health data uh, for this uh, at the neighborhood level to try and identify which neighborhoods have the highest prevalence of drug use. But you can see more or less all of them have the same uh, pattern uh, of the concentration of drug use uh, downtown, uh, which is at the center uh, of these maps, uh, and uh, a sort of U-shaped uh, pattern. In fact, if you, uh, there are other maps that uh, have mapped poverty uh, in Toronto, and not surprisingly, uh, the maps overlay quite uh, accurately. We then wanted to see how many people would actually use the facility. And there actually have been uh, some survey data amongst people who inject drugs to ask them this. About 79% of people said that they would uh, be willing to use a facility. Uh, and 72% of people said they would travel up to a kilometer, but not um, more than a kilometer, in order to use. Um, I'll just stop here to say, uh, so Vancouver has similar data, uh, looking at how many people said they would actually use the facility before it was open. And then they actually looked at how many people used the facility after it was open. And the proportions were actually quite similar, although it wasn't actually the same people. Some of the people who said they would use the facility didn't, and some of the people who said they wouldn't use the facility did. But overall, again, about 70% of people who inject drugs uh, ended up in the neighborhood, ended up using the facility at least two months. Well, we assumed that the facilities would be located in the regions with the highest absolute number of people who use drugs, and we estimated the proportion of, uh, drug using, uh, of the drug using population who would use the facility using all of the above. And this is what we found. So before I talk about these numbers, it's important to recognize that uh, those maps that I showed you actually uh, represent a fairly large city, in fact, Canada's largest city, so a large geographic region. So uh, when people say they wouldn't travel more than a kilometer, uh, it really means that uh, any single facility isn't going to capture more than, we estimated here, about 10% of the population of people who use drugs. So. Uh, so we looked at what would happen if there were uh, multiple facilities. And you can see here, for the first three facilities, it's almost linear. Uh, each one captures about 10% of the population, and then, intense, and then falls off a little bit after that. But one of our recommendations in our report was that a single central facility, like in Vancouver, didn't make sense for a city like Toronto, where drug use is much more widely distributed. We recommended uh, two facilities using the same sort of logic uh, for Ottawa. Well, so the actual number is based on cost effectiveness, which I'll show you. But uh, our thinking about uh, the kind of facility and the location was, again, driven by this uh, geographic analysis. 
we know in Toronto, 18% of people who use drugs report sharing needles over the past six months. Uh, we, using our mathematical model, we calibrated that there were, uh, on average, were about 480 injections per person per year. Um, uh, we estimated that 3% of all injections uh, were shared, uh, and um, we have data from Vancouver that um, people who use the supervised injection facility decrease their needle sharing by 70%. Now, and we want to pause here and just emphasize that this is decrease in all needle sharing. So clearly, uh, needles are not shared within the facility, but there is an effect of people who use the facility even when they leave the facility. So there is an educational and public health uh, intervention uh, to in, uh, both to distribute clean supplies, but also to educate people about the importance of not sharing needles. So we assumed a similar effect for, uh, at baseline uh, in terms of what would happen to needle sharing in Toronto. And then we built a, a fancy simulation model. We looked at the po adult population aged 15 to 64. We modeled uh, drug use. Uh, we modeled HIV and hepatitis C transmission. Uh, we incorporated existing harm reduction interventions like methadone. And we projected health effects and costs over 20 years. And we really looked at healthcare costs for the general population, for people who use drugs, people living with HIV, hepatitis C. And we. Uh, updated our model uh, and published this last year, uh, which is the results I'll show you in a minute, uh, to account for the new, very expensive hepatitis C drugs. Um, we included methadone costs. We included costs related to cocaine use. We didn't really have a good place to start for our operating budget. We used the budget for the Vancouver facility, which is about $3 million a year. We assumed, uh, and there are some data published from the Sydney, Australia facility, which says that about half of those costs are fixed and half of those costs are variable, depending on the number of people who actually use the facility. So again, we use those same numbers. These are probably conservative. So one of our recommendations was to integrate supervised injection facilities within existing centers rather than to establish new centers. So the costs are probably uh, considerably lower than what I'm going to show you, but we use the high costs in order to be very conservative in our assumptions. So here are our results. Uh, you'll see Toronto's on the top and Ottawa on the bottom. We have uh, each line represents the number of facilities, the number of costs, the number of quality adjusted life years gained, the incremental costs for each new facility, the incremental qualities, and the cost effectiveness ratio. And really what we did is we, if we go down that last column in terms of cost effectiveness, uh, in Canada, we still tend to use a $50,000 per quality adjusted life year threshold to determine whether something is uh, cost effective. So we go down that column until we get to 50,000 or more than 50,000, and we choose the number that is uh, uh, less than 50,000, the last number that's less than 50,000, and going across, and we get the answer that there should be three facilities in Toronto. And if we do the same thing for Ottawa, you can see we go across here, and we get the answer of two facilities for Ottawa. So, this was the big headline news. Uh, it made me a little bit uncomfortable that people focused on the number of facilities and uh, didn't necessarily pay attention to all the other uh, data that was in our report. I'd like to say we had a 320-page report, and everybody focused on a single number, which was the number three, which was the number of facilities that should be established. But uh, that is the nature of uh, such research. 
But here's some data to show you uh, some of the uncertainty. So if we, um, the different regions on this graph represent the number of facilities that would be considered cost effective. Uh, and you can see that um, the green uh, here represents three. This cross represents our baseline uh, assumptions. And um, yeah, you can see that it's just on the border between three and four. Uh, but if, for example, the uh, uh, risk of needle sharing, uh, so if people decrease needle sharing even more than we'd assumed, uh, then four facilities would be cost effective. Or if the uh, facility costs were even less than we assumed, then four or perhaps even five facilities would be cost effective. And here's some number from some data for Ottawa showing similarly we uh, uh, concluded that two facilities would be cost effective for Ottawa. Uh, but if we were wrong about the number of people who inject drugs, um, yeah, that uh, cross could shift left or right. Uh, and if we were wrong about the uh, effect in terms of decreased needle sharing, that number could shift up and down. So there was lots of uncertainty in, in this model. Uh, a lot of the uh, numbers that we put in were our best guesses, our educated guesses, and certainly uh, we can support every single number that's in the model, but we're dealing with a potential intervention. We're not dealing with an actual intervention. So one of our conclusions was that these need to be revisited and evaluated when facilities are established. Nevertheless, our conclusion still was that it, it makes sense to go ahead and establish these facilities because they look to be, uh, uh, even with our conservative assumptions, cost-effective. We didn't include some important effects. We didn't include overdoses, and that's particularly important. Uh, the main reason we didn't include overdoses is that we don't actually have very good data uh, on uh, we have data on the total number of overdoses. We don't actually have very good data on overdoses that are related to injection versus related to other routes of administration. We don't have very good data breaking down overdoses by intentional overdose for suicide versus non-intentional overdose. Uh, and we don't have very good data, uh, at least at, th at that point, we didn't have very good data on neighborhood of overdose. And you'll recall that the Vancouver analysis showed that overdoses were diminished in the region of the facility predominantly. Um, so again, we said we were being conservative, um, but um, uh, if I had to do it again, I probably would try and include overdoses in some way. Uh, we didn't include in increased action to ad increased access to addiction and other services, and we didn't include some of the other community indicators, such the decreased uh, uh, public litter, perhaps decreased crime in the neighborhood. And again, all of these are. Uh, and potential negative community indicators where people felt that the quality of life in their neighborhood may decrease because of the establishment of a facility. So we released our report in April 2012. We actually had a, a news conference. That's, those are all the media there. I'm, I'm up in the top left of that picture somewhere. Um, uh, and in the bottom right there. Uh, and we got a lot of uh, media attention from, uh, uh, at least within the Canadian media. These were our recommendations. Both Toronto and Ottawa would benefit from supervised injection facilities. Uh, the optimal model is a fixed facility that's integrated within an existing organization. And so we didn't actually advocate for the Vancouver model, the initial Vancouver model, which was a freestanding facility that was only focused on injection. We actually advocated that uh, existing facilities where people who use drugs are already receiving services expand the services that they have within those facilities to include supervised injection. 
We said a strong evaluation plan was a central component of any implementation plan, that there should be clearly established rules, and we actually reviewed uh, the rules that were used throughout the world. Rules are things like, is there a minimum age for people who uh, might use a facility? Uh, is somebody who's injecting for the first time allowed to inject in a facility? Um, yeah, and there are yeah, many other rules. And there are also regulations, how, how long is the facility open, uh, is, yeah, what happens uh, outside of hours, those sorts of things. We said there was insufficient evidence to support a recommendation to implement a supervised smoking facility. And we said that the process to establish a supervised injection facility should be part of a comprehensive drug strategy. So uh, the last point people sort of... Uh, Think sometimes we include it uh, to be uh, uh, to assuage people, but it's actually essential, right? That supervised injection facilities are part of a, a comprehensive uh, suite of harm reduction interventions, and they have to all of the harm reduction interventions uh, and uh, drug treatment interventions have to work in concert. So when we released our report, uh, our media people uh, counted uh, the number of newspaper articles in Canada uh, for us, and uh, they said there were 115. We had a sense of television and video uh, coverage. Uh, uh, we, CNN International came uh, to Toronto and did a story on us. We had supportive editorials in uh, three of the four Toronto newspapers. Um, we had supportive editorials in uh, one of the two Ottawa newspapers. Uh, there was some opposition, but it was relatively uh, limited. Uh, but the Minister of Health at the time said that we have no plans to pursue supervised sites. That was in 2012. In 2013, um, again, this was, uh, so remember the Supreme Court ruling was in 2011. Our report came out in 2012. In 2013, the Conservative government was uh, still in power federally. Uh, they, uh, in response to the Supreme Court ruling, uh, is, uh, introduced uh, a bill called the Respect for Communities Act. Uh, and, so, and this act really set out what communities needed to do to establish new supervised injection facilities. And uh, this was widely interpreted as setting up uh, considerable barriers. Uh, so there had to be extensive data collection, uh, and there had to be letters of, uh, from uh, uh, city council as well as from public health officials and from the police uh, regarding establishment of facilities. It's not clear whether the letters have to be supportive or not, but there still have to be letters from all of those agencies. And uh, so many people saw this as challenging. The Toronto Medical Officer of Health uh, uh, publicly endorsed supervised injection services uh, a month after this bill was introduced, and he publicly opposed uh, the bill. Uh, and Toronto Board of Health, which is a subcommittee of the City Council, uh, voted in favour of the Toronto Medical Officer of Health's recommendations. That was 2013. Still not much happened until 2016, uh, this year. So actually the change in government happened in late 2015. Uh, we went from having a, a conservative federal government to having a liberal federal government. And the new federal minister of health is actually a primary care physician. Um, she uh, toured the Vancouver facility and she uh, made a public announcement that she was in favor of such facilities and she uh, thought that they had significant health benefits. Uh, and shortly thereafter, the second Vancouver facility was approved. 
Uh, and this is actually a much smaller facility. It's an existing health center. It actually had been operating for a long time, but nobody had, uh, the police, as I said, in Vancouver were quite supportive, and so the police had no interest in shutting it down. Um, but it had been operating really uh, outside of uh, the legal processes. Uh, but it is a small, uh, they have a three or four uh, cubicles where people can inject. Um, but much more along the line of integrated services that we were uh, recommending for Toronto. We also had a change in mayor uh, in Toronto in 2015. Little our last mayor, became internationally famous uh, in part for his drug use, uh, but he was adamantly opposed to supervised injection facilities. Uh, the new mayor actually was is the former head of the provincial conservative uh, party, uh, but is. Uh, uh, considerably more socially liberal in many of his views. Uh, the mayor has not yet um, said what his stance is on supervised injection facilities. Uh, Toronto Public Health in 2016, earlier this year, announced that they were moving ahead with plans to establish three supervised injection services in Toronto. And uh, they went to the Board of Health to ask for uh, their endorsement of the initiation of this process, and the Board of Health unanimously voted in favor. Uh, and so we have now started public consultations in Toronto on establishing three supervised injection services uh, in those neighborhoods that I showed you uh, on the map before, uh, all of them integrated within existing community health centers or needle exchange programs. Uh, and there was significantly, around the time that this became a, a, a significant policy discussion earlier this spring, there were uh, a large group of uh, prominent citizens who publicly endorsed supervised injection, including five former mayors, and former mayors from across the political spectrum, both conservative uh, to uh, social democratic uh, mayors, uh, but all of whom came out in support of supervised injection services. And the police chief, uh, again, we had a change in, in the chief of police last year. Um, the new chief, when he first came to office, said that he would never support this. Uh, now, actually, he uh, has not said very much, other than he said he wants to wait and he wants to see what the result of the consultations are. Uh, but um, uh, so neither supporting nor opposing, uh, which is a fairly significant shift. In Ottawa, the, both the mayor and the chief of police didn't change in Ottawa. Uh, and both have been very strongly opposed to supervised injection services. Nevertheless, the Community Health Centre in Ottawa has announced its intention to open uh, services within their facility. Uh, the Medical Officer of Health uh, just uh, a couple of months ago uh, came out strongly endorsing supervised injection there as well. But I said the mayor and the police remain strongly opposed, uh, but they have now started community consultations there as well. Montreal has already actually filed an application with the federal government to establish uh, four supervised injection facilities in uh, their city, and there are several other Canadian cities that are considering this as well. And uh, I want to finish by just being a little bit reflective about the process itself. So we were actually invited to write this uh, commentary for The Lancet, which came out uh, two weeks ago. Uh, where we talked about uh, the process of making the case for supervised injection services. 
And I think there were really four key elements that have led uh, to the um, process getting to where it is today in Ontario. The first is the strength of ha having powerful advocates. So we have strong local champions who have the uh, power to drive change. In Toronto, that was the medical officer of health and the city councillor who uh, is responsible for overseeing the city's drug strategy. Uh, both pushed this uh, on the policy agenda quite vigorously. Uh, in Ottawa, the medical officer of health there has recently come out, as I said, strongly in favour as well. So there's been a lot of advocacy from, from community people, uh, from harm reduction workers that led the initial initiatives, but really it didn't catalyze, it didn't uh, into a policy initiative until we had the support from people who were actually uh, in positions of power. And ev evidence and advocacy alone weren't sufficient to bring about change. The second is having a clear narrative. Um, it's interesting to me, in our report, we looked at many different health effects. We looked at HIV, we looked at hepatitis C, uh, we looked at community effects, but really the narrative around supervised injection now in Toronto has really focused on overdoses. Um, and uh, there's been a striking increase in opioid-related deaths in recent years. Uh, particular, the last data we have is in 2014, but from 2013 to 2014, there was uh, about a 30% increase in opioid-related deaths in Toronto. Uh, and that has really been the focus of much of the discussion around supervised injection, much less focus on other health and social aspects. Um, but highlighting this identif very identifiable unmet health need has really helped to frame this narrative, uh, and I think it's also helped to motivate both decision makers and the public. The third is this willingness to engage in dialogue. So I didn't show you um, in the interest of time, but we actually have, uh, we have both quantitative and qualitative data that suggests that um, there are a core set of people who are opposed to supervised injection under any circumstance. When we, we have some public opinion polling data that we've analyzed, uh, and that uh, data suggests it depends very much how you ask the question. But there are about probably 10, 11% of people who would uh, never support supervised injection services in Ontario. There are about 15% of people who are strongly supportive and just think that this is something we should do uh, uh, without really uh, any or very many conditions at all. And almost everybody else is in the middle. Uh, they tend to. They range from being somewhat more supportive to somewhat less supportive. Um, but for them, their support is conditional. And it's really conditional upon wanting to see a net benefit after considering all the potential net effects, all the harms and the costs. And our qualitative data from our focus groups and interviews also was very much in line with this finding. And the, the, but people are able to think about these harms and costs at both the individual and the social, uh, societal level. Uh, but as with any other harm reduction intervention, there's a need to engage with and be responsive to a broad spectrum of concerns. These are controversial issues. They uh, are sometimes counterintuitive to people, and uh, they do require a certain amount of, uh, a certain kind of dialogue uh, rather than a uh, confrontation. And last thing I think that was particularly important in uh, uh, our context or our situation was paying attention to local context. So we looked at the distribution of drug use, those maps that I showed you. We looked at the prevalence of HIV and hepatitis C. I didn't show you those numbers, but they're actually quite different in Toronto and in Ottawa and in Vancouver. 
and they will be different in each location where facilities are being established. Uh, we look at the distance that people are likely to travel. Uh, we look at stigma and discrimination uh, when considering the kind of uh, model that would uh, serve people well. Uh, and we look at optimum service delivery through our uh, cost effectiveness analyses. And uh, uh, the point here, though, is that our recommendations are particularly specific to the locations that we studied. And uh, uh, I think that this sort of intervention uh, is really going to have to pay a lot of attention to uh, those particular site-specific circumstances. So in conclusion, harm reduction interventions can meaningfully improve the health of people who use drugs. They remain controversial as they don't necessarily lead to less drug use, uh, which for some people is the main goal of drug policy uh, or uh, clinical work. Supervised injection facilities have been implemented in many jurisdictions. They have the potential to improve both individual and public health and to improve public order. Uh, but strong partnerships, clear narratives, uh, broad dialogues, intention to context are important for this kind of work, but perhaps for all controversial, policy-relevant, and value-laden research. Thank you very much. So uh, first, who knew Canadian politics was that exciting? Uh, <laughs> they can be. Um, so we're open for questions. So uh, understanding the significant social and ethical issues about providing heroin, cocaine, or whatever, uh, it seems to me that uh, from a harm reduction perspective, uh, injecting an unknown substance into oneself and obtain oftentimes criminal activity would have a significant social benefit. So I, I just wonder, is there any data around the, the impact of providing pure drug and providing it in a, in, in a way that does not Yep. So there was a, a study called the Naomi trial, N-A-O-M-I, that was published in the Journal of Medicine about um, uh, three or four years ago, uh, which was a randomized controlled trial of prescribed heroin uh, amongst people who use drugs. People And uh, main inclusion criteria was that people had to have uh, been through methadone uh, or some opioid agonist therapy repeatedly uh, and uh, still gone back to using drugs afterwards. Uh, and it, uh, so the, the two arms were prescription heroin or basically standard of care. Uh, and that study showed that people who were prescribed heroin uh, has significantly less uh, uh, use of other drugs uh, and less criminal, uh, uh, less interactions with the criminal uh, justice system uh, than people in the standard of care model. Um, the, uh, one of the interesting findings that they had, though, was that many people who were in the uh, standard of care arm were actually using hydromorphone, which is dilaudid, um, to sort of self-medicate, uh, which led them to hypothesize that perhaps um, prescription hydromorphone uh, would have similar effects to prescription heroin. Uh, and there was a study called Salome that was just published about two months ago, uh, which was a non-inferiority study, uh, in fact, uh, which showed non-inferiority of those. Um, so, uh, 
Uh, as I said uh, earlier in my talk, Health Canada is now looking at prescription heroin as a uh, uh, moving heroin into uh, the prescription realm. Uh, but I think uh, you know, prescription hydromorphone for people. Now, I do want to stress this is going to be a small population. This is really the hard to treat population who don't respond to opioid agonist uh, therapy. Um, but I think uh, I think we will see in the next year or two a lot of discussion about prescription hydromorphone uh, uh, for treating those uh, that population. Uh, thank you for this really fascinating presentation. Um, one of the slides that you had that I think was really striking, at least to me, I think most striking, was the the prevention of overdoses when you're very close to an injection site, but also striking how quickly that falls off when you're really just half a mile away. Um, and I wanted to ask you about, I mean, the, what you think. The first thought that came to my mind was, well, you can't really have injection sites all over North America within half a mile, but what you could really easily do is just decriminalize drug use everywhere in North America, and then you don't have the nurse there, I mean, there's many things you're not providing. But at least you're taking the necessity of the legal activity, the association with prostitution, rape, violence, et cetera, out of the equation to an extent. And I just wanted your comment on that. Yeah. So, um, so I think two two points that I would make. First, is I think you're right. Um, you know, um, uh, the the um, uh, correlation between distance to the facility and overdose is very striking, and it does suggest. Uh, you know, in the data that I showed, also, uh, you know, people uh, don't really want to travel very far in order to use drugs. And I think it's the nature of addictions, as you might expect, that when somebody obtains their drugs, they want to use them soon thereafter. Um, so, uh, so our supervised injection facility is going to help. I think they will help, but they'll help in neighborhoods where drug use is highly concentrated. Um, they are not going to be a solution for um, every every uh, location and, and uh, you know, uh, uh, interestingly, we've started to have some discussion about whether uh, we would have supervised injection in, in hospital for patients who are uh, hospitalized who continue to use drugs, but that's that's another discussion. In terms of legalization of drugs, you know, uh, Portugal is often used as an example of uh, what might happen when a country uh, Decriminalizes uh, drugs uh, as a whole. Um, I, you know, it's beyond sort of the, the scope here, but there are uh, 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 very interesting results that have come out uh, from Portugal in terms of uh, the decreased harms that have been that came after that policy intervention. Those sort of inferences are hard to make, of course, because it's not a randomized uh, controlled trial. There's, you know, this a before and after sort of time series intervention. But uh, I think. Um, um, there's a lot of discussion, uh, at least in some drug policy circles, around uh, decriminalization as a, an approach. And I think, uh, but you know, that's a very hard um, sell in a lot of policy circles. So I'm not sure how realistic uh, an intervention it would be uh, in, in many jurisdictions. Well, I think, um, at the Insight facility in Vancouver, Still operational, I presume. Yep. So, what's the frequency? Uh, what's the absolute number of uh, visits mm -hmm. per year? And then, what I'd really be interested in is what percentage of overdoses occur on on site? Because this is really about prevention, right? Yeah. Um, I don't have those numbers off the top of my head. Um, they. Um, you know, they, so one of the, uh, the critics of Insight sometimes do cite the relatively low proportion of people uh, who use the facility. So it's uh, it's still um, 
I don't want to give you an exact number because I, I don't want to be incorrect, but uh, it is a relatively low, if you look at all the people who use drugs in Vancouver, uh, the proportion of people who use Insight is relatively low. And now, that proportion tends to use Insight a lot. Uh, but it goes back to one of those slides that I showed you, suggesting that really, um, uh, in my mind, the, the way to interpret that data is to say that there is a population of people uh, for whom uh, these facilities will offer an additional harm reduction intervention, and that population probably isn't being reached through uh, conventional uh, means. Uh, in terms of, they have had uh, numerous overdoses they, uh, uh, at Insight. They haven't uh, uh, updated the, the numbers that I've seen in, in a while. They've had no fatal overdoses, but they've had many overdoses that they've treated actually in the facility, uh, like in Naloxone or sending people to hospitals. So potentially many averted uh, overdoses, uh, averted deaths. But, um, um, but the key piece of information for your justification for expansion into Toronto and Ottawa. Right, so our, our analysis actually didn't include overdoses, as I said. Our analysis really showed, uh, in Vancouver, actually, the cost effectiveness was mostly driven by averting HIV infections because of the very high prevalence of HIV there. Uh, in uh, Toronto, our analysis was primarily driven by averting hepatitis C infection uh, and the very high cost now of treating hepatitis C, so averting new hepatitis C infections becomes uh, an important policy initiative. I think we have time for one more question. I think you had your hand. Yeah, I think key is understanding addiction. What we've been taught is that's not addiction. What we've been taught as professionals and in our society. So under grappling with that, that's like a first step. If we understand that, then we can see why this is needed, harm reduction, why there's continued use and overdoses. Um, but there's plenty of examples out there of, of countries that have gone for harm reduction, decriminalization, different models, and um, the most successful ones are de uh, decriminalizing, using that money for, for safe injection, uh, controlled injection, but more importantly, subsidized um, uh, funds for businesses that will to employ these people so that they can reconnect. That's what it's about. It's, they're disconnected. They're, um, socially isolated, and that's a key piece that isn't being talked about much here in this country. I mean, we can't really even do the safe needle, the clean needle experiment here, so we're, we're really behind. Um, if you're interested in the Vancouver picture, a really powerful um, picture of that, uh, In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts by Gabramante, Dr. Gabramante, who I'm sure you could say something about his work. Um, I highly recommend that. And Chasing the Stream, the first and last days of the war on drugs is, is a paradigm shift stuff that we need to really address this problem. 100 years of drug policy that's failed it needs to change. We can't, we, can't, we can't change the problem with the same thinking about us and that. Okay, I think, uh, I think we're out of time for questions, but... Uh, Dr. Bayoumi is going to be around all day, so if anybody wants to connect up later, I'm happy to help facilitate that. And thank you all for, for coming. All right.